0: There are a lot of books written for founders. You know, I I wrote a book called Mastering the VC Game that was targeted at founders. Everybody writes books for founders because founders are the heroes. Founders are the ones that are on the pedestal. But without the joiners, there is no company. Welcome to Career Paths with Teal.
1: I'm your host, Dave Fano. If you've ever had a conversation about a startup, it almost always begins with the founder. But what about the joiners? The folks who come in at the ground level just as the startup begins. This week's guest is Jeff Busgang, who co-founded Flybridge, wrote a book on joining startups called Entering Startup Land, and has also been a longtime faculty at Harvard Business School focusing on entrepreneurship. In this conversation, we talk about the advice he gives to founders and students as they enter the startup ecosystem. I was trying to think of like how I would introduce Jeff. I've never met like a more kind, nice, caring, giving person. And if uh, if you can be lucky enough to have him be one of your investors, you are set up way beyond any amount of money. So I think he has all positive things that you could possibly imagine around venture capital. So much so that he continuously gives, he teaches, he writes books. All from a place of kindness, uh, and really because he wants to give. So I'm super, super lucky and happy to have you here, Jeff, to help folks think about how to join startups.
0: Thanks, Dave. It's totally an honor. I'm excited to be a part of it. What you're doing at Teal is so cool. We're just at Flybridge, just super excited to be a part of the journey.
1: It's amazing, and and, and I think this is exactly why we were excited to you know partner with you guys. That you're so committed to this, right? and yeah, so few people have really engaged in this topic. Right, it's really about um the entrepreneur and the companies and for you to like have literally written a book on working at startups and joining startups and less so like the entrepreneurial journey. I just think it sort of speaks to your,
0: your kind of like love for the startup ecosystem. I grew up with the kitchen table MBA and, you know, maybe that's really to your point earlier, where the passion came from originally. I've just always been around entrepreneurs and love The idea of supporting entrepreneurs first embarked on in my career being an entrepreneur. I was involved in two venture-backed startups as an executive, one that I co-founded and one that I joined. So I was both a joiner and a founder. And then about 18 years ago, co-founded Flybridge with a a couple of friends who spun out of their venture capital firm, joined with me and starting a firm that's really dedicated to supporting founders and helping them with their journey. So you guys have backed some incredible companies and it's been awesome to, to be a
1: part of it ourselves as Teal being lucky to have you guys as our, as our lead investor. We should define startups, right? It's such a nebulous term and you could be Airbnb who's about to go public or you could be you know, a figment of someone's imagination while they're still employed. So how, how do you think about startups in the sense of what we call a startup and where I'd go work and like what we associate with like the risk and those kinds of things. How do you define it? And
0: then maybe how do you like bucket them? It's a great question. There's no right answer on this, but for the purposes of when I wrote the book, Entering Startup Land, I had to think about this, about who really counted and where they counted. And I I sort of view it as if you're less than 10, 12 years old, if you're pre-public or maybe recently gone public in the last year or two, you're in that startup bucket. And I talk about three different, categories of startups in that bucket just to help people discern where in the journey they are or where in the journey the company is. There's the jungle, which are the pre-product market fit startups where the path is completely unclear and you have to hack your way to carve out your own path. The dirt road where there is a path, but it's bumpy and windy and that's post-product market fit, but still building out the repeatability and the sales and marketing model and the go-to-market. And then finally, the highway where the path is clear, it's paved, it's straight, relatively speaking, and it's about how fast you can go down that path, which is all about efficiency and optimizing the business model and driving towards profitability. As far as like people thinking about joining companies, what
1: are would you say like some of the, um, the career opportunities
0: from each of those three, three startup buckets? Well, the first thing I'd say is some people are confused about risk when it comes to joining startups. And what I mean by that is they think that if they go into a big company, they're taking less risk. And there's a whole mythology around big companies being stable and less risky. I think that mythology is wrong. And you look at the layoffs post-COVID you look at all the bubbles that we've gone through, the ins and outs, you look at the disruption that's happened to some of the big companies and you reflect on that and you you can say, well, look, maybe it's just as risky to go to a bigger company as it is to go to a startup, even a startup in, in one of these three buckets. And the way I like to encourage people to think about their career is you're going to be in a series of startups. So when you join into the startup ecosystem, when you enter startup land, Don't think of it as one company. Think of it as likely a series of eight or 10 companies over 30 years that you're a part of. And if one of those or two of those companies fail, don't feel like you're stuck. Just pick yourself up and go join another one and hope that the next one is is a winner. So that's that's one dimension I encourage people to think about, which is sort of put aside this notion of big company risk, risk risk-free, small company startups full of risk. And think about it more as a portfolio of experiences that you're going to embark on. And then within that, yes, you do want to think about risk, but more about uncertainty than risk. Some people have a high tolerance for uncertainty. Some people like being in the jungle. Some people like carving out their own path. You know, when you go hiking, do you, do you go for a walk around the neighborhood or do you go into the woods and grab your GPS and say, I don't know, I'm I'm just going to go that way and I'll figure it out. So The people who are very comfortable with uncertainty, who are very comfortable with the ups and downs, those are the people that are more likely to be comfortable in the jungle as opposed to the people who like a little more structure and certainty. And for those people, I recommend more the highway. And the dirt road is kind of the best of both worlds or the worst of both worlds, depending on your perspective. I mean, I guess there is some level of like funding series
1: alignment with these, right? Because some of these are hard to tell, like does the company like, right? When product market
0: fit is debated, even like what it is, do you really have it? Do you not? But one of the things I tell my students, you know, as you noted, I teach at Harvard Business School. I've been doing that for 10 years. I've had about uh, 1,100 students over those 10 years, most of whom have gone to become joiners in startups. Maybe 10% become VCs, 20% become founders, but 70% become joiners. And of that group, most of them Prefer to join the dirt road or the highway companies and establish their careers early in so doing, build some expertise, get some mentorship, and then move their way earlier in the value chain because
1: it's in uh, in the book and you've used it a couple of times I think it's pretty obvious with the language, but can you talk about those distinctions of the joiners and the founders and you know and some people actually you know jump around they join for a little bit, then they go found again, then they go join again you know you, you on your you know, your part, you've started companies, you've joined companies,
0: and I'm sure those things have informed each other. Yeah, for sure. There's always that small core group of people who are there at the beginning that are the founders or co-founders or founding team, if you want to broaden the definition. And it's usually that first two or three or four people that are there during the ideation phase. And if you love being a part of that really, really early, early part of the business journey, And if you're lucky enough to find a great team of people to ideate with, then that's what the founding journey looks like. And you're one of the founding team members. But the joiners are the ones that join right thereafter. could be three months in, six months in, but the idea is well-formed, maybe even pre-seed of a half a million dollars has been raised or a million dollars. And now the company is off and running, trying to execute on the original idea. And the joiners are employees number five through 10 or 20. I was employee number four at the company that, you know, one of the companies I came into, I was employee number 30 in another. You know, those are the, those are the folks that come in once the thing has been formed and, and then help scale it. So that's, the, that's sort of how I think about the distinction. And joiners, you know, as I, I noted in the beginning of my book, there are a lot of books written for founders. You know, I, I wrote a book called Mastering the VC Game that was targeted at founders. Everybody writes books for founders because founders are the heroes. Founders are the ones that are on the pedestal. But without the joiners, there is no company. And without the joiners, in your case, you know, at WeWork, without the Day Fanos that help build the business and actually operationalize the vision, you can't have a company. So the joiners in many ways really are the magic and there are very few conversations and in many ways, information to help guide joiners, which is why, you know, one of the reasons I think CEO is such a great, great service and offering. The idea that, You can still have a fulfilling,
1: exciting career with a ton of agency, just short of being the person who takes the ultimate risk and starts companies. It's still very possible and very viable. You just got to do that work and find a company that aligns with you. So as joiners, job seekers, career seekers are looking at startups, what's some advice you'd have for them? Uh, as like they, they identify companies? Because a lot of the concern is around the team itself. It's so small. Yeah. What does it mean for your career pathing? Path there isn't like an HR department to like help you do all that stuff. So what advice do you give to your students? And I'm sure a lot of people that come to you you know, for advice on the topic.
0: I talk about a handful of things that they should focus on. One is pick a stage, as we just talked about, which where in the spectrum do you want to go? Pick a geography. Even in the age of COVID, I do think geography does matter. Pick a sector, because I think it's critical to build expertise in a particular sector. If you're going to take that step back and look at this as a portfolio career approach to startups, if you want to be in fintech or health IT or blockchain, do two or three or four companies in that space and everyone will build on the rest. And then finally, pick a winner, which is think like an investor. If you, you know, I, I, I as an investor, I have a portfolio that I can invest in we make 8 or 10 or 12 investments every year at flybridge and so as much thought and care as we put into each investment decision we do that 8 or 10 or 12 times a year as a joiner you're only going to make that one joining decision every two or three or four or five years so you have to really put a lot of thought into it and one of the ways i i try to crystallize it for folks to say look if you had $10,000 or $25,000 of windfall, maybe it's from a a family member, or you won the lottery, or you got a, a bonus in your last job, would you invest that in this company? Because if you wouldn't write a check out of your own pocket of a meaningful amount of money and invest it in the company, why would you invest your career in that company? When they're thinking like an investor... And maybe this isn't even just some of the things you look
1: for as an investor, but what what kinds of things should a person be looking for who's maybe not as trained in thinking about like what the potential upside is like, you know, and how a company might grow or succeed? What are some things people should look for?
0: The three things that most all investors focus on, and, and you'll hear lots of variations of this, but it almost always centers on these three are team market and business model. So team As a joiner, what you really want to look for is, do I trust this team? Do they operate with integrity? Are they credible? Would I want to work with them in another company if this one works out or doesn't work out? Can I learn from them? It's a little more nuanced than how an investor looks at it because it's a little bit more about the personality and the quality of the character as well as the competence. General Schwarzkopf, the the famous uh, general who was under Bush Sr., won the Kuwait War has this great speech he gave at West Point graduation. If anybody wants to go back and look at it, and he talks about these two characteristics of competence and character, and that it's not enough to just be competent; you have to also have character. And by the way, it's not enough to have just character; you also want competence. And so, when you look at the teams as a joiner that you're thinking of being a part of, do they have both competence and character? So that's sort of the team dimension, and then the market dimension. What investors look at is, is it a big market? Pretty simple question. Is the total available market massive? Is there a tailwind here? Are there dynamics that make this market, if you look at the classic Michael Porter five forces, are there dynamics here that make this a more attractive market competitively for a sustainable advantage or less attractive? So you look at that, do that analysis. And then the final thing is business model. Is this a high quality, recurring business model with high gross margins and attractive? dynamics like network effects or other things that suggest you're going to build a, a strong competitive moat. Now, all of that may sound like a lot of business school jargon to some of you, but the reality is you have to think like an investor if you're going to enter into these companies, as I said, because the, you're buying into their equity and you're buying into their journey and you want to do it with all the same diligence and care that we do when we write the multi-million dollar checks. One of the things I'm realizing
1: as we do more and more of these programs is that there really is a general lack of understanding on how business works. And it, it gets me thinking like everyone needs some version of an ultra micro NBA, regardless if you're going to be an architect, if you're going to be a painter, there's just like some like basic stuff that they, you don't learn in economics in high school. And it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's, I think it's almost like more important than art history. Like, you, you know, you need to have that, like just like real
0: basis, one semester, just like one semester of, of how business works. I totally agree with you. I, I think there's a whole conversation we could have about higher education and the role of MBAs and the value of MBAs and the current environment. But when I hear startup founders and joiners poo-poo MBAs, I wonder, are they poo-pooing business and business models and business fundamentals? Or are they poo-pooing taking two years out of their life to go on campus, pay $150,000 and drink and travel with their buddies? I get that. But you should learn the content and you should be a student of business. Not, Not a single one of the founders that all of us admire, not a single one of them are not students of business. If you read any of the annual letters of Jeff Bezos, which are total works of art, if you read any of the annual shareholder reports from Elon Musk, or if you watch Mark Zuckerberg give his quarterly earnings report, you will very quickly appreciate they are all students of business. And they got there through self-learning as autodidacts. So you either have to do it in school or you have to do it on your own and and self-learn. Because one of my favorite things about Um, your book was, and
1: this also builds on the the idea that a lot of people don't understand how companies work, is you outline the functions at a high level. And it's become increasingly interesting to me how people land in a function or how they pick a function. And even the notion of functions, we don't talk enough about. We talk about titles. It's like, oh, I'm going to be this title. It's like, well, it really sits within a function. And let's think about how that ladders up. And so I'd love to hear from you how you think about like functional specificity in startups and how that changes from the jungle to the
0: highway. I'm a big fan of building a foundational base in a function early in your career or early mid in your career, because I think it gives you a a grounding of technical expertise. And when I say technical, I don't mean engineering. I mean, technical in the context of the function could be a finance function, could be a sales function, but subject matter expertise that you can grow with over time. And the way I used to think about this is when I was a founder, how can I be effective at hiring a VP of products, a VP of marketing, a VP of sales, a VP of engineering, if I've never been in that function and I've never worked as a peer with anyone in that function, I've never lived in that function, I just don't know how, how that function operates. So I think this idea of either... Uh, majoring in a function or majoring, dual majoring in two functions, maybe having experience in product and engineering, maybe sales and marketing, maybe customer success and sales. I think that's a really powerful uh, idea and concept because as you move your way up, you can use that foundation to then grow into more of a general management role. And what, uh, to recap for everyone who hasn't gotten the book yet, what, what are the
1: sort of major groupings of functions, you know, not down at the granular level, but the big buckets. Yeah, the high level.
0: Yeah, the big buckets are product, sales, marketing, business development, finance, and growth. And of course, engineering. But engineering is so specific and determinate based on your technical skills. I don't go into a lot of detail on that. But those other six functions are the key main functions. And each of those functions are very distinct. And that's why when some people who want to get into a startup say to me, hey, I'd like to get into a startup. I'm, I'm really great at strategy or I'm really great at problem solving. I say, well, that's nice. But if I go to one of my portfolio company CEOs and I say, I've got a wonderful problem solver, they don't know what to do with you. They're looking for a product manager. Can you do that okay. job? Or they're looking for a growth manager. Can you do that job? Let's talk about what that job looks like and see if you could argue and paint a picture that says you're awesome at that
1: job and you're worth taking a chance on. Yeah, that's one of the things we talk a lot about is ultimately companies hire you for your abilities, right? They've got, they want to get from point A to point B. They've identified some gap in abilities or that by time or just absence. And so they are hiring you to fill that gap. And so you have to show some level of more than like functional expertise maybe the alternative to that is that you've got an amazing network and they're buying into your network or something, but more often than not it's functional expertise that gets you hired. One of the things we see a lot of people struggle with is presenting themselves as a generalist. It's like, Oh, I can do all these things. And I've kind of got like mixed advice. How do you think that relates to the stages of yeah. jungle? Uh, you know, cause there's a part of me that says like, well, yeah, I'm, I want to be a, I can help with a lot of things at the jungle phase. Yeah, but I just kind of don't think that a lot of people want to hire generalists. So, of course, once you get in, you can add a lot of value, but you still kind of have to present
0: as someone that's at least got a lane. I agree. If you're early in your career, if you go into the jungle startup and you say, "I'll be, you know, minister without portfolio," I'll I'll do whatever it takes. We, we in our shop sometimes we call that the the miscellaneous other founder. We just handles (laughs) everything that's miscellaneous. We need a new office. Great. You go handle that. All right, we're setting up a podcast. Great. You go handle that. So it's it's the miscellaneous other co-founder or founding team member. And, you know, VP of miscellaneous can be a ton of fun early in your career. It's a way of getting a lot of responsibility very quickly, working with senior people. But eventually, it gets old. And if you're the VP of miscellaneous at 40 or 50, you're going to find that you're turning over every year or two because after a year or two of growth and success, they don't need miscellaneous anymore. They need the functional lane. So early in your career for the jungle startups, I think it's great to be a generalist. You can have a lot of fun. But as you progress, you do want to build that functional expertise. But you don't want to be in a two-person startup forever. You want to be in a two-person startup that's eventually going to be a 200-person company. And you want to be a director or VP of one of those functions. And all 200-person companies, they have functions. They don't have a lot of generalists running around. Startups are are tricky in
1: that sense, because there's also a lot of like, I don't want to use the word opportunities, but there's a lot of situations where things can be taken personally, right? Because there's such a connection, right? The bigger the company, the more it becomes, let's say, commercial. They're all commercial, at least that's my belief. It definitely
0: feels much more personal in those early days. It really does. You know, a lot of the startups that are in the news, particularly in the last few months, has, have been around layoffs and shocks to the culture and what people said was family and now is business. And I think the the tension between building community and a sense of values and shared mission, and this is business and this is somewhat transactional, That's a, that's a tension that companies really struggle with, big companies and small companies. And I think the best ones, figure out a way to say, look, we are a business. We do try to make money, but we do have shared values. It's an and. And if we can pull that off in a in an authentic way that's credible, then we can get loyalty and be mutually loyal. The thing that really upsets people when they go to a startup and they feel they give, 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 and then when things go sideways, they're discarded like yesterday's trash. So and that's why I come back to the team and the integrity and the character, not just the competence, but the character of the founding team and the leadership team is so critical when you're choosing that, that company to join. All right, we're short on time. Topic that comes up a bunch, and I know that uh,
1: a lot of VCs beyond delivering capital, they also help with the recruiting. There's obviously recruiters, internal, external, and maybe other channels like VCs, partners, angels. But what do you think about some of those channels, with a particular focus on recruiters as a way to get into startups?
0: There's definitely a hierarchy. Of the referral, and the quality of the referral is valued and evaluated by the receiver of that referral. So, if I'm the CEO of a startup and one of my investors tells me to meet with somebody, I take that very, very seriously because I value their judgment. We chose to work together as partners. If one of my executive team members or even a you know staff member tells me to go meet with somebody, I take that very seriously because I've Elected to invest in hiring them and trust them with my business. So you sort of go down that hierarchy, lawyers, um, you know, other service providers, recruiters are pretty low on the list, candidly. Now there are two types of recruiters. There's retained search and um, contingency search. Retained search are very high because I, as a company, I would pay a retained search firm money out of pocket to go find an executive. And that's a very high quality relationship and a very trusted relationship. But a contingency firm is very loose. You know, it's like, I'm only going to pay you if you show up with somebody that I'm going to hire. So you want to be careful with those contingency based firms that are really just kind of smiling and dialing and blasting out messages through LinkedIn just to get some fish in the boat. Um, Because if you're one of those people, you you look like you're coming in through an unwashed channel as opposed to coming through the more curated channels that have a higher level of hierarchical value associated with them. There's no reason for you to stick around in a culture that feels toxic. There's no, like there's just no reason. And and I think having the, the confidence to be able to step out and say, you know what, I'm better than this. And I know there are companies that are better than this because trust me, there are. Uh, even if the headlines look good, if you know on the inside it doesn't feel right, you should definitely step away. And I, and I would just encourage people in this environment in particular, find those cultures that have that diversity, inclusiveness, that warmth, that trust, and that quality of character that you feel good about being a part of. Couldn't have ended it better if we tried.
1: That was awesome. Jeff, thanks so, so much. feel like we got a little bit of a micro MBA here.
0: And, and, not, not and you save
1: money. this was awesome thanks so much that was incredible and everyone should pick up Jeff's book his two books are great one if you want to start a company definitely check that out and if you want to join companies entering Startup Land uh, is an incredible book my pleasure thanks Dave we hope you enjoyed this episode of Career Paths with Teal now it's your turn do you have an interesting story about your career that you'd like to share or would you recommend someone you'd like to hear from If so, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note by heading to the show notes on this episode for the link to contribute. This podcast is sponsored by Teal, and our job is to help you land a job you love. As a member, you can dive deeper into all the conversations on our show. For information on how to sign up for one of our programs, visit www.tealhq.com conversations for this show were facilitated by me dave fano and eric martin produced for us by rainbow creative by matthew jones and ritu Jagannath. audio editing by hammond chamberlain thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one